0: Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day.
1: And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We have another special program in light of being in the Easter season, or as I mentioned last time, my favorite expression is resurrection season or resurrection day. Some of you will be listening before Good Friday, while others, due to programming in other areas, will listen after Easter Sunday after Resurrection Day. Well, friends, I find myself in a quandary as I have the challenging task of sharing Good Friday's grand truth along with Resurrection Sunday's glorious truth during the course of one program. You know, friends, some people seem to have this view of God, how lucky he is to dwell in heaven where everything is just sweetness and light. No weeping, no pain, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. What could God possibly know about what humanity has been forced to endure in this world? Surely God has led a pretty sheltered life. Well, friends, just imagine for a moment that at the end of time, billions of people are scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some of the group up front actually talk heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? One man said. "'What does he know about suffering?' snapped a woman. She then jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. "'We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death.' From another group, a black man lowered his collar. "'What about this?' he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime except being black. "'We suffocated in slave ships, were wrenched from loved ones, "'toiled till death gave release.' All across the plain, as far as the eye could see, hundreds of such groups gathered, each voiced a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he allowed in his world. How lucky God was to live up in heaven, where there was no weeping, no pain, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. For what did God know about what human beings had been forced to endure down here in this world? They were saying, after all, God leads a pretty sheltered life. Well, each group sent out a leader chosen for what they had suffered the most. A Jew, a black, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate person, a victim of Hiroshima, and one from a Siberian slave camp. These leaders then met in the center of the plane and consulted with each other. They were now ready to present their case. It was rather simple, actually. Before God could be qualified to judge them, he should endure what they had endured. So they decided God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. But because he was God, they imposed certain safeguards to be sure he could not use his divine powers to help himself, such as being born a Jew. Have the legitimacy of his birth doubted, so no one would know who his real father is. Have him champion a cause so just but so radical that it brings down upon him the hate, condemnation, and efforts of every major traditional and established religious authority to eliminate him. Have him try to describe what no human has ever seen, tasted, heard, or smelled. Let him try to communicate God to people." have him betrayed by his dearest friend, have him indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge, have him experience terrible loneliness, and be completely abandoned by every living thing, have him tortured, and then let him die, and have him die the most humiliating death, alongside common thieves." Well, as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the great throngs of people, scattered across that huge plain before God's throne. When the last one had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. Because all of a sudden they all realized God had already served his sentence. Friends, God loved the world so much that he didn't send an angel. God loved the world so much that he didn't send a committee. God loved the world so much that he did send his only son, Jesus. God the Son became human and lived among us. Friends, we sometimes initially think of God the way those groups did, who stood before his throne and concluded that God leads a pretty sheltered life, you know, way out there, way up there, so to speak. And there's a word for that perception in theology. It's transcendence. That's just a fancy word for God being far above us in many ways, seemingly distant from us. Ever feel like that? But friends, if this is the only way we perceive God, we've left out an important piece of the puzzle, the other half of the story, the other side of the coin, if you will. Our theology would be incomplete unless we also perceive God's imminence. This is our other fancy theological word for today. It means for our context, very near or present with us. So, friends, the Christian view of God is that the transcendent God became very near or present with us in Jesus Christ. And why Jesus is called the God-Man. Through the lens of the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we learn that God has not led a pretty sheltered life. In that one phrase, friends, the God-man, we see and experience both the transcendence and the imminence of God Transcendence in the word God, imminence in the word man. We may wonder just how near is God to us. Well, Jesus himself said it best in John 14:23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Then later in John 15, 4, Jesus adds, Abide in me and I in you. Jesus abiding in us meant that God was as near as he could be. Friends, i often asked, what's so good about Good Friday? Or even, why is it called Good Friday? These questions evoke a reasonable wonder. It certainly wasn't good for Jesus, right? And it certainly wasn't good for his followers, right? After all, their hopes were totally dashed to the ground, weren't they? This is what the scriptures tell us, right? Friends, the most revealing and telling text that for me is remarkable every time I read it and makes me shudder is Luke 24, where the two disciples met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You know the story, don't you? Remember after his resurrection when Jesus briefly disguises himself and tags along with these two disciples, asking them, what are you two discussing? Let's listen in at verse 17. They stood still. Their faces downcast. Now, I have to stop here. We can easily glide right past this verse and completely miss the significant truth. The key word is downcast. Some other translations say, looking sad. Sadness written across their faces. Looking discouraged. Looking sad and gloomy. Looking full of sorrow. Gloomy is used for a good reason. English translations make a noble attempt to communicate the depth of this term. No single English word suffices. These various word choices help us see that these two disciples were severely depressed. Let's pick up the story at verse 19 where Jesus makes another inquiry and the two continue about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem israel did you hear that friends let's reread that as if we were them but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem israel can you hear their doom and gloom can you hear their depression speaking can you feel their hopes dashed to the ground aren't they telling us that the crucifixion ended it all for them that the crucifixion was final The crucifixion stole all their hopes for the kingdom of God to finally dawn upon Israel. The crucifixion destroyed the notion that this really was their Messiah. After all, their Messiah, their hope was executed. We can almost side with them, can't we, and conclude with them that the path of the Messiah had been detoured. It turned out to be a failed mission, a grandiose scheme gone bad, a good plan that went awry. It was just a messianic delusion on the part of a first-century teacher, sage and revolutionary, with a messiah complex that came to a sad and sudden end. After all, let's face it, friends, the skeptics and every liberal scholar out there level these very arguments against Christianity and the Bible and attack the very core of its beliefs. The mainstream media even chime in by continually interviewing these liberal scholars as though they had the last word. But by carefully scrutinizing the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we discover that the path of the Messiah was part of a blueprint laid out before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13:8 tells us all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Acts 2:22 through 24 say, "Fellow Israelites, listen to this." It turned out that Jesus' disciples subsequently understood numerous Hebrew scriptures to be pointing to or predicting their Messiah's death and resurrection. Like Acts 2:25 through 36, Peter quotes Psalm 16. Acts 3:18 through 23, he quotes Deuteronomy 18. Acts 2:29 through 35, Philip quotes Isaiah 53. Acts thirteen twenty three through 41 the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 16, Isaiah 55 and Habakkuk 1. This is further confirmed by 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul draws from an obvious earlier church tradition already established. In the opening verses, he declares, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And remember, this is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul later adds, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If we've only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Friends, around 1930, a Russian communist leader, Nikolai Bukharin, journeyed from Moscow to Kiev. His mission was to address a large assembly on the subject of atheism. For one solid hour, Buchanan aimed his atheistic heavy artillery at Christianity, firing both barrels, arguments and ridicule. Finally, his tirade ended. Surveying the audience's faces, it appeared people's faith was smoldering in ashes. He proudly demanded, "'Are there any questions?' To his surprise, one man stood up and asked to speak. He then walked forward, stepped up to the platform, and stood beside Baccarin, the communist. The assembly was silent, breathless. This man also surveyed the crowd, gazing to the right and left. Suddenly he burst out with an ancient Orthodox Christian greeting. Christ is risen! The assembly sprung to their feet, their response sounding like an avalanche. He is risen indeed! Friends, being Greek, I know what that Orthodox greeting was in its original language. Christos Anesti, meaning Christ is risen. And the standard reply is Aneste Alethos, meaning literally risen indeed, but understood as he is risen indeed. Friends, after World War II, D. William Sangster, a prominent evangelical Methodist minister in Britain, spearheaded a spiritually new movement. But in 1968, he contracted a disease that progressively paralyzed his body, eventually his vocal cords. On the Easter before he died, with great pain, he scribbled a note to his daughter with the few fingers that could still move. It said, how terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout. He is risen, far worse to have a voice and not want to shout. Matthew 28, 1 through 15 records one of the resurrection accounts. The opening verses tell us, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Matthew's account is important because it's the only gospel that records the first conspiracy theory, the alternate theory as to what happened to Jesus' physical body. In Matthew 28:11 through 15, we read, The guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole them away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and get you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And friends, to this very day, in our time in history, alternate theories about what became of Jesus' body abound. It's a field day for the skeptics and critics who come out of the woodwork during this season and spout their so-called intelligent recreations of what happened. Do you know that there are some 17 theories now that have arisen to explain away the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Some of these are the legend theory. The resurrection accounts were actually legends that cropped up years after the time of Christ. The wrong tomb theory. After the angel told the women he is not here, see the place where they laid him, probably pointed to the tomb next door. But the women fled in fear. The hallucination theory. Jesus' disciples only thought he saw him, but they were actually hallucinating. The stolen body theories. The disciples themselves, or the Jewish or Roman authorities, stole his body. The popular swoon theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, just fainted from exhaustion and blood loss. The coolness and dampness of the tomb revived him. The Passover plot theory. That Jesus thought he was the Messiah and plotted a detailed plan to concoct his resurrection. It was foiled, however, when the soldier speared him, and he died shortly after.' But these theories just distract us from the gospel records which are authenticated in 1 Corinthians 15, written before the gospels. Friends, the truth is that the resurrection account in Matthew 28 has three plain statements made by the angel to the women in verse 6. First, he is not here, and he is Jesus. Second, he has risen. And third, just as he said... Any alternate theory that claims that it was not Jesus himself that rose from the dead makes the angel and Jesus out to be liars. Friends listen to some statements made by Jesus or about Jesus before and after he was crucified. Remember matthew sixteen twenty one and Peter declaring Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Right after that we read, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. How about Luke 24, where the angel said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then the third day, rise again. These only reinforce the truth that he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb. The disciples weren't hallucinating. Jesus didn't swoon on the cross and then revive. The disciples didn't steal his body and then fabricate a story he rose from the dead. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Friends, the truth of Jesus' resurrection was so important to the first disciples and apostles that it was the benchmark of their first sermons— On the day of Pentecost, Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, beginning at verse 22, includes these words. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God "'raised him from the dead, "'freeing him from the agony of death "'because it was impossible for death "'to keep its hold on him. "'Shortly after, in verses 29 through 32, "'Peter continues, "'Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently "'that the patriarch David died and was buried "'in his tomb is here to this day.' But he was a prophet, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He is not here. He has risen just as he said." Friends, if Easter, and you know I prefer to say Resurrection Day, means anything to us today, it means that eternal truth is eternal. You can nail it to a tree, wrap it up in grave clothes, and seal it in a tomb, but truth dashed to the ground will rise again. Truth does not perish, it cannot be destroyed. Truth may be distorted, truth may be temporarily silenced, but truth has been compelled to carry its cross to Calvary's brow, but with the inevitable certainty that after every Black Friday dawns the truth of resurrection morning. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Friends, a little three-year-old girl, Nicole, was as anxious for Easter to come as she had been for Christmas. Her parents took her shopping for a new pair of shoes. She remarked to Dad, I can't wait for Easter. So Dad asked, Honey, do you know what Easter means? Nicole quickly replied, Yes. Then her dad continued, Well, honey, what does it mean? In her own little sweet three-year-old way, with arms raised high and a smile on her face, Nicole blurted out the top of her lungs, Surprise! Friends, what better word could possibly sum up the meaning of Easter or Resurrection Day? Surprise! Death! surprise sin surprise morning disciples surprise modern man he's alive christos anesti christ is risen anesti alethos he is risen indeed amen amen well friends we're nearing the end of our program the path of the Messiah finally paid off. You see, our sins were paid in full. In fact, Jesus' final recorded words on the cross, it is finished, mean exactly that. The cool Greek word is tetelestai, and archaeological digs in commercial districts of the Roman Empire have unearthed receipts with the word tetelestai scrawled across them at the bottom, meaning paid in full. It can also mean transaction completed. For in his crucifixion, Jesus' blood now forgives us of all our sins. And in his resurrection, we now rise to walk in newness of life. Yep, transaction completed. Amen. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I appreciate those of you who write in and comment on programs that have impacted you in some way. Well, thanks for your kind and encouraging words that you've been writing in to me. I appreciate them all. And remember, friends, the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And please keep in mind that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. We have not been immune from the challenging financial and economic times we're in. Please consider financially helping to keep A Word from the Word on the air with your kind support. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this
0: program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.